the Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussion podcast episode addressing the chronic disease of obesity. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. We're grateful to Nova Nordisk for their support of the GSA Toolkit for the Management of Obesity in Older Adults and today's podcast. My name is Jen Pettis, and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America, and I'm delighted to serve as a host for today's Momentum Discussion podcast that we're recording from the podcast booth at GSA 2023 in Tampa, Florida. Joining me for this podcast are Dr. John A. Batsis, a geriatrician and an associate professor in the Division of Geriatric Medicine, the School of Medicine in the Department of Nutrition in the Gillings School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And also joining me is Dr. Katherine Porter-Starr, a registered dietitian and an associate professor at Duke University School of Medicine and a research health scientist at the Durham VA Medical Center. As I mentioned, we're recording this podcast at GSA 2023. Drs. Batsis and Starr, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to participate in GSA's annual scientific meeting here in Tampa for all your contributions to our GSA Care Toolkit for Obesity and to share your insights with me during this time together. It's, it's such an honor to be here, and uh, thank you for having us. Really a pleasure, Jen, and thank you again for the opportunity to chat to you and our GSA membership. Great. Thank you both. Let's start by talking a bit about perceptions around obesity. Dr. Batsis, how well is obesity understood as a chronic disease by different audiences? For example, can you address the understanding of obesity as a chronic disease among healthcare professionals, in the public, and in general and in older adults? And how do these perceptions perhaps vary by racial or ethnic groups or other characteristics? Well, thanks, Jen. And I think this is a great introduction to the topic of obesity and weight in older adults. Obesity, as you know, has been designated as a chronic disease by the American Medical Association a number of years ago. The challenge here is, it, has it really been implemented and accepted as part as being a chronic disease by healthcare uh, practitioners, among all sorts? That's, I think, the big question that we need to ask ourselves. It really needs to be along the lines of hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, and the like. And we need to be considering it as a chronic disease, not as a failure of behavioral management among patients across the entire lifespan. It's all about biology. It's all about everybody's an individual. And with each chronic disease, it's a biological basis, really what triggers the onset of the, of the disease. So I think there's been a challenge amongst healthcare providers. Probably a major component has been a lack of education in their training. Different healthcare practitioners have different degrees of training of what obesity is its causes, how to treat it, and the like. At least from a healthcare provider, physician standpoint, I can say medical schools in the past, when I was training, we weren't getting a lot of a nutrition-related education. Thankfully, things are changing. And a first good step, as I shared, was obesity being recognized as a chronic disease. Additionally, we have board certification in obesity medicine, which is really enhancing the importance of obesity as a disease and needs to be managed accordingly. 
challenge with public is a good one to talk about. We have, there's a lot of negative stigma and a lot of biases towards persons with obesity in the general public. And we really need to be thinking about it differently. Patients and people with obesity are not just lazy. They're not just in a position where they, well, they failed you know, their inability to change their diet or exercise. A lot of folks do try, and we really need to be thinking about how do we target each individual individually. Everybody's different, and in a one-size-fits-all strategy to address this really major epidemic is critically needed. Lastly, we know that there are a significant number of racial and ethnic disparities in obesity care. A major component of this has to do with the access to care. I know we're going to talk about that likely a little bit later. But importantly, social determinants of care. And everybody has different backgrounds in areas of privilege to areas of non-privilege, rural, urban areas. So these are just some small examples. But these all impact the differences in the heterogeneity, really, that we see in older adults and in obesity in general. It's complex. And I think that's really a major take-home point. It's, there isn't one solution. It's really a multifactorial-based solution. Okay, thanks for that introduction. Great information. Dr. Starr, how is obesity linked to other chronic health conditions and risks for functional decline and decreased independence in older adults? That's a great question. And I just want to say it's such an opportunity, an exciting opportunity to be here with John and Dr. Batsis and just the synergy. It just He gets me so excited about this topic area. And I think the movement that we're headed in towards trying to address all of the things that he really hit on. I think as we're thinking about obesity as a disease, it's important for us to think about the biological components of obesity and chronic other chronic health conditions. And inflammation, that chronic low-grade inflammation is a, is a major contributor to those associations with obesity, cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, numerous other chronic health conditions. In addition to that, thinking about the quality of the muscle as we're aging, and we see the physiological changes with age. We know that we have anabolic resistance. We know that we are going to see a decline in muscle mass and muscle quality and function as we get older. It's naturally occurring. However, when we have that inflammatory component, mixed in with that natural aging process, we know that that's going to contribute to that decline in function. And when we add that with excess adiposity, again, thinking about that muscle quality, the ability for the body to function and the muscle to function and for us to be able to do the activities of daily living, things that we love to do, we know that's going to be impaired. So as we're thinking about the correlations and associations with obesity and other chronic health conditions and that functional decline, I think coming back to what the physiology that's happening in the body when we're thinking about excess adiposity. And it's really important, again, as we're moving into this conversation about treating obesity as a disease, I think that really helps paint the picture that it's not about willpower. It's not about, you know, someone's just not trying hard enough or, you know, they're not willing to put in the effort or time. Let's, let's think about it as a disease state. Let's think about it, how we can treat that with multiple modalities and understand that, yes, there is a behavioral component to this, but that's one component that we have to include in that conversation. So I think that multiple chronic condition state is really another great area where we can kind of hone in as we're continuing this conversation around obesity and obesity as a disease state. And I think, you know, I really want to hit home what Katie just shared. 
it's about biology. And we've really, in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, has really gotten a great understanding of the biological basis of obesity itself as a disease. And once we understand that, then we can target the biology. Some of the newer medications, some of the strategies are really affecting underlying biology. And that's really, you're hitting the underlying issue with adjunctive types therapies. So Dr. Batsis, you mentioned a bit ago about different racial and ethnic groups. And I wonder if you can tell us a bit about prevalence of obesity in older adults between some different groups. And I, and I wonder, when I think of health disparities, you mentioned urban and rural, and that's such a significant issue. And I wondered if you could comment on that as, as well as ethnic and racial differences. Sure. And I think first and foremost, we need to be thinking about how do we define obesity? And that's, in particularly in older adults, that really is a, a major challenge. We're often using in clinical care body mass index, BMI. And we know that as one ages, height changes, changes in body composition, as Katie mentioned, in terms of the loss of muscle mass and muscle strength with, uh, with age. And this actually really changes the, the, that ratio of weight over height in meters squared. So body mass index is really pr not a great indicator for adiposity in older adults. In, we know that its diagnostic accuracy actually diminishes and reduces with age. Other measures, waist circumference is probably a better indicator. Using both is probably even better of an indicator. So I just want to be a couple of caveats. We can't, unfortunately, we're not in a position, our healthcare system is not in a position to go measuring body fat on just about everybody, you know, at, at least at this stage. So most estimates are actually using body mass index for good or for bad. It just That's just the way it is from a population-based standpoint. And when we look at the most recent data, and again, depending on the survey that's used, using, for instance, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, both in males and females, using body mass index of over 30 kilograms per meter squared, the prevalence rate is approximately 42 to 43%. 70% of our population both older and younger and middle age or younger adults over the age of 18 are classified as having overweight or being in the overweight category. This is a true public health epidemic. Sure. And irrespective of the challenges that we've had over the last couple of years with COVID-19, it's that some of the long-term estimates have actually shown that our life expectancy is starting to be affected. So that's on the general population. Now, when you do a deeper dive and see our different populations more or less at risk. A lot of developing countries are now becoming, are, are assuming a lot of uh, industrialization and the like, and we see a lot of their rates increasing. Urban versus rural, we see their disparities there. A lot of that has to do with healthcare access challenges. Community, disadvantaged communities, or in, in particular, one that comes to mind are tribal communities, for instance. They have poor access to care, poor, you know, fewer resources than others, and their rates of obesity are much higher alongside with other chronic conditions as a result of that. So every population has different targets in terms of potential causative reasons. So again, someone in rural North Carolina versus in rural Florida, one rural is one rural is one rural. And I give that, and you can adapt that according to every type of demographic. There are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences, Absolutely. and we really need to be understanding some of these health equity issues. Okay. 
Great. Dr. Starr, this seems like it might be a simple question, but I suspect it's, it's not, and that is why is it so important to intently address obesity in older adults? Yeah, and I think John uh, hit on this early. We know that our older adult is very heterogeneous. We are, when we are working with our older adult patient population, uh, you know, we always have the saying, you've, when you've seen one adult, older adult, you've seen one older adult. And again, it's not just the physiological changes, it's these social determinants of health. It's the education, it's the racial difference, it's the ethnical difference. It's the trauma, potentially, from childhood that's not been dealt with. It's, there's just so many components when we're thinking about how we're thinking about obesity and how we're thinking about treatment of obesity. And again, when we think about food, right? Food is social, food is love, food is gathering, food is celebration, food can be sadness. And so there's also this other relationship that we have when we're thinking about that relationship we have with food too, that it's, you, we have to put that into the model. And so when we're thinking about the biology of aging, the social determinants of health, actually giving education about proper intake and what your energy needs are, how you're treating this with another chronic health condition, and then how we're dealing with some of the psychological components. This cannot be tackled by one person. The PCP cannot be the one person who's helping treat and manage and, you know, work on uh, this obesity treatment manage along with our patient-centered approach with the individual. And I think that Unfortunately, our healthcare system is not necessarily built for that interprofessional approach to care for obesity, but we have seen this model work in, in areas. We've seen it work in bariatric surgery models. We've seen it work in cancer models. We've seen it work in other healthcare, other chronic health condition uh, models. And I know that we can make this work. And I do think that we have to tackle this. As we said, this is an epidemic. We're talking 70% in that overweight category. And again, like, we're not really, we haven't even, it's just going to continue to become a problem that we have to address. And it's not just a quick fix. It's not just a new medication. We really do have to tackle this at all these angles. And that's why it has to be intent. And again, I'm talking about too some of the, the overarching components. The other major component is meeting the individual, meeting our older adult where they're at and bringing them into this conversation and being a partner alongside them in this process rather than I'm treating you for this. And, I, you know, this is this is what the plan it is. What is our plan? What is the plan that we're going to be working on together? What is the interprofessional plan and how do we continue that continuity of care? It's not a 15 minute visit. It can't be right. And, and I think we're trying to treat it as a 15 minute visit. And it just and that's why we're not really seeing a lot of movement here in obesity management and treatment. And I think that's the, exactly the fundamental issue. You just nailed it right there, Katie. You can't do this in 15 minutes. Primary care, and particularly relevant to older adults, I think. Primary care, older adults come to the primary care clinician. Yep. They come with their, maybe they come with their list. If they come with their list, say it's of six or seven items on their list. In a 15, 20, even let's give it 30 minute visit, they're not going to get to number six or seven, which is often where weight and weight-related health promotion mm -hmm. comes in because they're more worried about their knee pain. They're more worried about their inability, their shortness of breath. They're, I'm waking up and I'm exhausted, you know, which may all fundamentally be part of this, the, you know, obesity itself, but it's lower on the list and it's lower on the, on the provider's priority list. So I think there's a... 
there are things from a patient standpoint, you know, meeting the patient where they are. There, from a primary care standpoint, it's an infrastructure challenge. I think a huge infrastructure challenge, which regrettably, or not, comes full circle to reimbursement, <laughs> because that's what our system is all about. It's a fee for service, for predominantly rather than a value-based care. And then we haven't even gone touched upon the surface of community-based resources here, but it really needs to be, it's almost like a somewhat of a hub and spoke model where the, you know, the PCP can potentially be the coordinator, but you really, they need the, the team, it's a team. And I think we need to really emphasize, highlight, boldface, underline that. So, as that team, and certainly including the older adult themselves as part of that interprofessional team or interdisciplinary team, as they begin to support this individual on their weight loss journey, there's that assessment piece. And so what are some key tenets of that assessment that PCPs and others need to take into consideration, Dr. Starr? Yeah, I think that's great. And again, I think the geriatricians and the gerontologists in the room are always going to come back to what matters most to the patient. I mean, that's fundamental in what we're taught and, and how we work with older adults, but that is not fundamental across the board. And I think number one really does have to be the patient at the forefront, as we said, and really thinking about what does matter most to them. What about mobility? What are the four M's or what are the five M's? You know, multi-complexity, mind, uh, medication, how all of those impact the older adult and how they also cross, cross over into that obesity treatment and management because there is a component for each of those if we think about what matters most from an obesity treatment standpoint. We're thinking about mobility from an obesity treatment standpoint, multi-complexity, right? All of those things, mind. I mean, we're looking at, you know, we're, we're the cognitive component here and all of this work that we're working on in cognition, there is a crossover here with this obesity treatment that I think we, we haven't quite made that leap. But from an assessment standpoint, again, putting the patient first and making sure that we're all on the same page, our goals make sense and we're, you know, we're following along and following suit with, um, with where the person is at. Um, one of the, the conversations that ha had yesterday was you can't take somebody from pre-contemplation to behavior change in a, in a day. Like that's not we, but it's the baby steps to that too on, on having those conversations. So I think from an assessment standpoint, we have the, we, we know we need to be thinking about weight body composition. We need to be thinking about sarcopenia and how we're measuring that loss of muscle function, uh, loss of muscle strength, whether that's gait speed, whether that's hand grip strength, whether that's chair stands, some form of a functional component in there so we can truly capture what is their functional status, what is happening. I think that's really key and I don't, we're, we're not doing that across the board. One of the other things that I think is, is also paramount to this is Again, making sure that we know where the person's at in this process, and this it, this is not just again a quick fix. This is a, a this is going to take time. This is going to take some work, but it takes work from the entire team. And again, I love what John was saying about creating this hub system where we have these resources out there. Where if we identify during an assessment that is access to food, we can get them out to the community-based organization. But there is cross communication, right? between the PCP, the RD, the community-based organization, social work, so that we actually know that, okay, social work consult got put in because we see that there's food insecurity. Did they actually get the meal? Did they not get the meal? How's the dietitian able to help with the medically tailored meals on that because they have multiple chronic health conditions? 
where they just put on the wait list for Mills on Wheels, right? It's and the PCP cannot be the one that's following up on all of this. So from an assessment standpoint, right, where's the patient at? What is their functional status? How are they moving? What is that muscle quality, muscle mass? What is that looking like? And as we're thinking about treatment options, are there some community-based organization resources that we can be referring people out to? Are we identifying those social determinants of health that we need to? And then from the treatment component, really thinking about, you know, if we're prescribing diet and exercise, do they have the resources to do this? If they do not, where are those resources? How do we get those resources? And how are we having those conversations? So assessment's really big because I think when we're thinking about assessment, a lot of times we have those blinders on and we're just thinking BMI, body composition, waist circumference, and it's so much more than that. And we've already, you know, covered all of those things. So I think that's kind of really my my thought around this idea about having this comprehensive assessment, and again, it can't be 15 minutes, it's going to have to be cross, cross disciplines, cross professions, and, and having that coordination of care and communication of care. And really, this comprehensive assessment really needs to incorporate core geriatric principles. <laughs> and that, I think, you know, is, you know, thinking about geriatric syndromes and, like yes. you said, the, the social behavioral components. A geriatric, comprehensive geriatric assessment yep. doesn't, can't, you can't do it in 15 minutes. So how are you going to be able to do all this all at once? And I, that's, I love that because I think if we're looking at obesity assessment, obesity care, we need to be going back to that model of the geriatric assessment and thinking about, okay, how do we, how are we aligning that with the geriatric assessment and, and how are we crossing over with that? Because not everybody has a geriatrician. Right. Very right. few people have Very geriatricians, few. right? Absolutely. We need more geriatricians. So. Or more folks trained in geriatrics or, you know, geriatric skills. Because yes. as you said, there's no way we're, you no. know, the it United can't. States or elsewhere is going to be able to, you know, turn out more geriatricians or geriatric care providers. But it's really understanding and really adapting our existing infrastructure. And I'm thinking about in particular, like our annual wellness visit is a great opportunity to incorporate some of the, some of the geri core geriatric assessments and functional assessments that are important in in managing persons with obesity. Yeah, absolutely, that's great. So we have just a few minutes left, and I want to spend those really talking about treatment plans. We've talked about assessment, but let's let's talk about first, Doctor Starr, if you would address dietary and physical activity interventions. And one thing that comes to mind here, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on what we need to do different, is when the older adult maybe has pain in their knees and needs that knee replacement, and they say, the orthopedist says, nope, sorry, can't do that until you lose 20 pounds. So let's talk about that, and then how does someone like you help them meet that goal safely and effectively? with these interventions? Yeah, that's, it's such a great question. And uh, we see this all the time. We see this a lot where we have an individual who is really in a lot of pain. However, they're an individual with obesity and the surgeon is just not willing to take them to the operating room until they've lost weight. And so what ends up happening, at least what I see in my clinical setting, is I get the individual who has been really reduce their dietary intake, really, really focused on, I got to get this BMI to this level. So, and I need this so that I can move. And, and really 
we're seeing this loss of weight, but it's loss of muscle mass and it's loss of function. And by the time I'm getting them in there, they're not even able to get up out of a chair. And it's really, it's the communication part of this. We have to make sure if we're telling someone that they have to lose weight in order to get a treatment, you're gonna have to give them resources and guidance and consulting. So one of the key things that I do in my clinic and what I have actually done with my orthopedic surgeons is really talk to them about, hey, I understand that this is the requirement that we have for surgery, I, I get that. So how can we work together? So if we have somebody, they're now putting in a consult for an RD so that we can actually see the patient and help them with that weight loss safely, help them with that weight loss in a way in which we make sure that they're getting enough adequate protein, they're getting enough micro and macronutrients, and that we're doing that in a safe environment so that when they do lose that weight, they're gonna be able to go into the OR room and they're gonna be able to get back to that functional baseline status at a much rapid, more quickly. So that's one of the key things that I think it's, a, it's, it's making sure that we're not just telling people they need to lose weight or they need to move more. We have to be more purposeful with our comments because again, older adults are listening to what is being told to them and especially if pain is on the line, they're gonna do something to get out of pain. And we see it truly, we see this across the board. So I think from a lifestyle intervention, you know, there's a number of things that we have to think about. And, and because of the work that I do and, and John does, you know, I, I bring it a lot back to that muscle and the physiology because it, it, it just helps me really capture that ability to think about what's actually happening to the muscle, what's actually happening to the individual itself so that we can have that movement so we can keep that mobility, so we can keep that functional status, so we can keep that independence. And so I wanna make sure that we're thinking about the muscle with weight loss. And, and one of the things in which we wanna do is it's not just about moving, it's about moving purposefully. It's about doing strength training so that we can truly help keep that muscle mass as strong as possible especially when we're thinking about weight loss. Regardless of weight loss, we really do need to be thinking about strength training. Unfortunately, only around 20% of older adults are doing any form of strength training exercises, and it's, it's unfortunate. And so from a nutrition and dietary standpoint, we're really thinking about making sure, again, they're meeting micro and macronutrient intake, but also making sure they're getting in that, excess, that protein intake. Again, that anabolic resistance, that resistance to building muscle mass, that resistance to stimulating muscle protein synthesis is something that we have to consider when we're thinking about older adults and protein intake, especially when we're thinking about weight loss. And finally, we do need that aerobic exercise. So it's a combination of all three of these, uh, making sure that we have a purposeful diet that really has that high quality protein and making sure that we're thinking about not only aerobic exercise, but also that resistance training so we can really maximize muscle health and help these individuals lose weight in a way that they can keep that muscle mass as, as much as they possibly can. You mentioned a few minutes ago about potential trauma someone might have experienced in the, in the past and other things that might be contributing to their obesity or their overweight. And so can you comment a bit on psychological and behavioral services for an older adult when they're on this journey. Absolutely. So when we think about, and I'm going to just go back to, I'm just going to touch on, a, you know, substance abuse disorders. When we go to the language or to the, the literature around addiction and substance abuse, the psychologist is one of the key players in that because of the fact that this is something that we have to get to the root cause of, we have to start with the healing process. A lot of times the psychologist is not a part of the weight loss journey or the weight management journey, and it should be. 
we again, we have ties to food. If we've had some trauma, if we're using food as a way to fill something inside of ourselves, we, we really have to work on that because regardless of what treatment we do, if we're not fixing that internally, we're never going to, I mean, there's going to be another hole that has to be filled and it's going to be filled with something else. And so having that psychologist on board, having the psychiatrist on board is such a crucial component. And I think they're oftentimes missing in the team when we're thinking about what's the weight management, you know, what's the team for obesity treatment and management. Um, And we really, they really do need to be a part of that conversation so that we can really help. One of the great models, just very briefly, is the VA MOVE program. It includes an exercise physiologist, a registered dietitian, and a psychologist. All three of those together, working together to really help change behavior, educate, and also work through some of the components that might be dealing with trauma or, you know, psychological connections that we're we're utilizing food as, you know, uh, filling filling a hole or filling a gap. And Dr. Batsis, the last question is for you. What are the role, and this is certainly not a quick answer, I know this could be a whole presentation, but what are the role of pharmacological and surgical interventions in care for older adults? Well, I was waiting for that question, Jen. And it's not a short answer, unfortunately, but I'll try to summarize it. Uh, We have all been exposed to a plethora of new anti-obesity medications, particularly the GLP-1 agonists, and uh, most recently uh, another one was approved just uh, earlier this week. I think there's a lot of promise with these medications. The clinical trials have really demonstrated significant amount of weight loss in these populations. Just like the majority of clinical trials though, and this is where you really wanna dissect the studies. You wanna see what, where were these clinical trials done in terms of what, what's a patient population and what were the characteristics of those patients. So the majority of these trials, they're not related to older adults. Very few trials have had a significant number of older adults in their cohorts. Uh, There are some, I'm not saying that there are not, but there are some, but the majority are not. So that's first and foremost. Why is that important? Circling back to our earlier conversation, the biology of an older adult is very different than the biology of a 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 year old. So we need to be very mindful of that. So that's not to say not to use them, but that's not to say we should completely use them in everybody. They should be considered as adjunctive therapies to lifestyle therapies of, you know, improving dietary quality and aerobic and resistant exercise. And the reason for that, the weight loss that is observed with these GLP-1s in particular is pretty high. It's almost on the par of what you see with bariatric surgery. And we know from the bariatric surgery literature, when you lose weight, you're losing both fat and muscle, coming back to the issue of sarcopenia weight loss and do sarcopenia. We haven't even talked about the effect on bone, but that we, that's, again, a, d- a discussion for another day. So how do we mitigate that? And, re- and what are the appropriate candidates? I would love to say I have good evidence for you, Jen, and to our, you know, our, our listening GSA members, but we don't have good evidence here. Th- there are v- minimal studies on looking at body composition changes in older adults as a result of these medications. So... We presume, we know that weight loss on its own without aerobic and resistant exercises leads to disproportionate reduction in muscle mass and strength. 
So individuals who are on these medications should probably be well positioned to have actually been undergoing a structured exercise routine. Whether or not they should be initiating that at the time of, of the medication or not, that's again, unknown. But the hope here is that they've tried, they have been engaging in changes in their diet and exercise, so they have that foundation, and then you're adding on top of that the GLP once. So you're not starting a, a route, an exercise routine de novo, and I think that's what I'm really afraid of in in this population. From a surgical standpoint. There's been more literature in older adults. A lot of methodological challenges in the literature. How do you define older adults? What's is it age? Is it is it functional status and the like? Big centers. There are bariatric surgery centers of excellence. Type of surgery is important. Open versus laparoscopic. Importance of cognition and social support all play into fact. So again, you're hearing a lot of the same themes. Comprehensive geriatric assessment in the evaluation of our patients. Well, thank you both. This has been a great discussion. Thank you for joining us here at GSA 2023 in our podcast booth. We are so lucky to have you guys as GSA members and such close collaborators, and we really appreciate your support of our obesity work. Thank you both. Thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you, Jen. This is great. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org. G-E-R-O-N.org.